Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Sharon Ladyman, a senior research fellow at the University of Otago, and Dr. Victoria Vieira Potter, an associate professor at the University of Missouri, Columbia. They both recently joined us for a webinar on applications of rodent metabolic phenotyping with a focus on the effects of hormones on daily activity levels in mice. Let's dive in. We have a question for Sharon. So Sharon, someone has asked, what accounts for the spike in running just after giving birth in these mice? Right, so yeah, on that figure early on across the whole reproductive cycle, yeah, there was that little spike after birth. And this has to do, we think, with mice and rats actually ovulate after giving birth. So they can potentially mate there. So we think they have a, a spike in estrogen, which might be driving that running wheel activity because estrogen can drive running wheel activity. So that's what we think that little spike is, but we see it on most mice. But yeah, so we think it has to do with that postpartum ovulation. Okay, fantastic. Just, that's yeah, really cool. Yeah. And then we have another question here for you, Sharon. Which factors most explained the reduction in running behavior? For example, did mice run more slowly or did the mice just spend less time running or was it a little bit of both? So when we look at like the speed that the mice are running across pregnancy, it really doesn't change from the virgin levels until late pregnancy. And we think that that is due to the fact that these mice have, you know, put on 15 grams of, of weight over three weeks and they're just physically incapable of going faster. But the early on change, there's no change in speed. It's a decrease in the time that they are running. And what they're mostly doing instead is sleeping. So we see an increase in sleeping behavior. What we don't know yet is whether they are having like, so mice run in like a bursts of running they don't get on and run for an hour they're just on and off on and off and we don't know if it's less less bouts of running or if it is shorter bouts of running so that's something that we're quite interested in looking at in the future oh that's really cool so potentially a future study plan for you guys okay so now we have a question for victoria so someone has asked are there alternatives to estrogen therapy to improve metabolism following menopause? So yeah, that that's an excellent question because, you know, although we know that estrogen really does rescue many of the metabolic effects that we see following hormone loss, both in humans and in rodents, there are definitely risks involved in involved with with estrogen replacement namely there's breast there's a an increase in breast cancer risk there may be some cardiovascular risks and so it's 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 not recommended for 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 all women to to get estrogen replacement so so in terms of alternatives to estrogen replacement we're actually looking in the lab, we're becoming really interested in selective receptor ligand. So I didn't, I wasn't able to share these data with, with you all, but estrogen mediates its effects through two main receptors, alpha and beta. 
And it turns out that most of the risks associated with estrogen therapy are due to its signaling through the alpha receptor. And what we're finding in the lab is that there are benefits through the beta receptor that would bypass any, any, any risks. And so those aren't clinically available, but I think that's an, a research, an area of research that's kind of up and coming is looking at selective ligands. But as far as now, there are dietary approaches like soy, soy-based diets are used by some women because phytoestrogens in soy kind of look like estrogen. There's not great data on um, the efficacy of those, meaning there's not a lot of harm in, in using them, but it, they're, they're certainly not as powerful as estrogen in terms of having a, a, a benefit metabolically. Okay, really cool. We have another question for Sharon here. Somebody has asked, how soon in early pregnancy does the timing of food consumption change? So i.e. to eat more around the clock or eat during the dark period? And is it connected to the change in running wheel activity? So in terms of food intake in mice, we don't really see it like significantly increase until um, maybe day like 14 or 15 of pregnancy. And you can appreciate that a mouse eats quite a little amount and to see a significant increase requires, yeah, it requires time during pregnancy. So we don't see a significant increase in food intake until about the, the middle to late pregnancy. What we do see with that is that in terms of like how they're eating, they have an, not more meals during over the 24 hours, but it's bigger meals. Yeah, and I think our data doesn't really show that the percentage-wise what they eat during the night and, and, and during the day doesn't change even with increasing food intake. So they still eat most of their food during the night. Although other people, you know, see slightly different things during pregnancy where maybe they start increasing a bit more during during the, the light phase. So there is a little bit of variation between different people's mice. But so like during lactation, food intake would increase is just in the light phase as well, which we don't really see too much of it during pregnancy. So in terms of how that reflects running wheel activity, we don't really see too much of a connection. I mean, we see those really early changes in, in, in pregnancy, but no, the food intake is not till much, much later in the second half of pregnancy, at least okay. for a mouse. Really cool. Okay, so we have another question here for Victoria. So somebody has asked, did you appreciate regionality differences in the visceral adipose depot when measuring UCP1 expression levels? Oh, that's a really great question. So we didn't really assess that. And so there is this kind of what it's, it's called beijing or browning of white adipose tissue for people who aren't really familiar with this. But what happens is, yeah, white adipose tissue kind of increases its expression of UCP1. And that really does seem to happen kind of regionally. Like it'll happen little, little pockets of the tissue, but maybe not kind of globally. We only looked at a very, you know, small section of tissue. So we didn't do a thorough analysis of the entire depot. And so in, in our, in our little itty bitty section of the window that we looked, we really didn't see regionality, but that's not to say that that didn't happen. And also we're not, so in the, in the, in the studies that I was just sharing with you, those 
animals weren't manipulated in any way where they would have an upregulation of UCP1. Whereas we've done other studies where we use a drug to, to activate UCP1. Exercise is also another way where you can increase UCP1 in white fat. And in those studies, you really see a robust increase in UCP1. And you can really kind of appreciate in looking at the tissue little pockets of, of where that browning is happening. But in this particular study, we were just looking, yeah, more, more at a, at a really small kind of a window of tissue, and we didn't see those regional differences. Okay. We have another question for you, Victoria. Someone has asked, what did your sham for your ovarectomy entail in your mice? Yeah. So we essentially open up the mouse and we take out, we, we basically, we make the same incision and we sort of pull the ovary out and then we just put it back in. We leave it intact and we sew the animal back up. And we've done these so many times that the study that I just showed you, we did, we did actual sham surgeries on those, on those rats. Those are the rats that I showed you that were OVAX. But we've done that so many times now and we don't see differences. We've gone to just in some studies, we just leave the, we, we leave the animals intact to kind of save them from that surgery. But that's generally what it looks like. We, we make the incision, we expose the ovary, we put it back in and we sew it up. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So we have another question here and it's going to be our last question just to respect everybody's time because we're already a minute over. But this last question is for Sharon. Regarding your findings of the importance of the MPOA specific expression of prolactin receptors, are there changes in prolactin receptors in these neurons with aging or prior breeding? I don't, I don't know about aging. I do know that we get a lot more prolactin responsive neurons during uh, pregnancy and lactation in this era, particularly in lactation. It lights up more with, if we, if we look at prolactin induced P step five. We haven't looked in animals that have gone through many uh, cycles of, of breeding, but that's something that we've talked about because we know that rodents become better mothers. There's just like this idea of maternal memory, which we think is likely to involve that area and prolactin action in that area. So we do have plans to actually look specifically at that, but we haven't done it yet. Okay, so another future study plan for you. Yeah, yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.